1999, John F. Kennedy Jr. was flying a small airplane from New York City with his family home to Massachusetts for a wedding. On board was his wife, Carolyn, and her sister. Now, John F. Kennedy Jr. was a licensed pilot, but he had never been approved for instrument flight, that is, flying only with your instruments with no visibility at all. And when the takeoff was delayed after dark, it probably would have been wise for him to delay and wait till daylight. But Kennedy, feeling rather confident in his own abilities, took off in the darkness. Well, the plane never reached its destination, and all three passengers were killed, crashed into the Atlantic Ocean. Later on, investigators determined that the crash was likely caused by disorientation from flying over open water at night. When you lose track of where, what's up and what's down, everything begins to look the same. Kennedy's lack of experience and overconfidence may have led him to trust what he thought he was seeing instead of what the instrument panels were telling him. Now, this is a sad case, of course, but there are many other sad stories like it. When people, because of their overconfidence and their abilities, proved fatal. However, there's another kind of confidence that I would like to point out this morning that is far more serious. A pilot's overconfidence can lead to a plane crash and perhaps death, but confidence in the flesh can sometimes and often does lead to hell. You see, the Bible talks about the confidence of the flesh, a person trusting in their own righteousness, in their own goodness to carry them to heaven. I'm a good person, people will say. Certainly God would like a guy like me. Uh, at least I haven't murdered anyone. And those kind of arguments abound. In other words, I have nothing to be worried about. It's this confidence that because I'm a good person, certainly God will, will look on that and yeah, certainly I'll make it to heaven. God will accept me on my own merits is basically how they see things. However, this grossly misunderstands the nature of sin, the gospel itself, and the teaching of scripture. The Bible says repeatedly in various places, you cannot be saved by your own merit. You cannot be saved on your own laurels. Salvation is not based upon what you have done or outperforming someone else or simply racking up enough good works to outweigh the bad that you've done. Instead, the Bible says you cannot be saved on your own merit. Ephesians 2 offers a pretty plain statement of this. For you are saved by grace through faith, not by works, lest anyone should boast. Titus chapter 3 verse 5 says much the same thing. Not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to his mercy he saved us. Not by your works. It's not by what you have done. Confidence in the flesh is overconfidence. Because it counts what we do as worthy of earning salvation. And you cannot save yourself. That's why I want us to turn to Philippians chapter 3. Now last time we poured over the first three verses of this chapter. And we looked at how we can maintain and preserve joy when so much in life would cause us to fade away. This morning, however, I want to go over those first three verses again, and hopefully we'll move the, the ball a little further down the road this time. Because this passage in Philippians is one of the most important in decrying the false belief that we can merit salvation. 
and ends in one of the clearest texts on justification anywhere in the Bible. Verse 9 says, And being found in him, not having my own righteousness, which is from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness which is from God by faith. It's hard to be any clearer than that. Justification is one of the main themes of Romans and the book of Galatians. You don't really expect to find it here in this book all about joy and, and unity. But here it is. A clear warning. Do not put confidence in yourself. Well, I'm going to make three observations this morning about why confidence in the flesh is dangerous. Why is confidence in the flesh something that we should look out for? Well, let me put it in three different statements, and and these should be in your bulletin. Number one, confidence in the flesh is not the gospel. That's why it's dangerous. That's why it's misleading, because it purports to be the truth when, in fact, it is a twisting of the truth. The gospel is entirely opposed to the idea that we can have, by our own merits, lift ourselves up to God. The gospel, instead, is the good news that God sent his son into this world to save sinners like you and me. There's no room for self-righteousness in the gospel. It's the admission that we are sinners, that we deserve nothing. As the great English preacher once said, The greatest enemy to human souls is the self-righteous spirit which makes men look to themselves for salvation. I want to draw our attention to the first three verses. We talked about these last time, but let's go back over them for for the sake of remembering what's here. Verse 1. Finally, my brethren, rejoice in the Lord, for for me to write the same things to you is not tedious, but for you it is safe. Beware of dogs. Beware of evil workers. Beware of the mutilation. For we are the circumcision, who worship God in the spirit, rejoice in Christ Jesus, and have no confidence in the flesh. So there's this opening statement in verse 1 about joy. Rejoice in the Lord, he says. And then, verse 2, he launches into these false teachers. Warning. Three times he says, beware, beware, or look out for. And he calls them dogs, evil workers, and the mutilation. I think we noted last time, but those are three alliterated nouns showing that Paul is a good preacher. You know, three-point alliterated outline. Nevertheless, these enemies are, in fact, enemies of the cross. We might wonder why Paul is so harsh here in condemning them. There's not a lot of um, moderation in this verse, is there? It's like Paul goes for the throats. And and we might say, well, Paul, this seems a little harsh. This seems a little um, too much. Well, I think the answer to that is to understand what Paul sees here. The people he's attacking, the people he's targeting in verse 2, are those who twist the gospel message. And nothing makes Paul more upset than those who would take the gospel of grace and add works to it. In fact, a similar thing is found In Galatians, Galatians chapter 1, Paul there is is speaking to a group who's doing much the same thing, adding works to faith. He says there, there are some who want to pervert the gospel of Christ, but even if we or an angel from heaven preach any other gospel than that which we have preached to you, let him be accursed. Now that may not strike your ears as being particularly harsh, 
but just take note of the word. Accursed there means condemned unto hell. That's what Paul thinks of this message of adding works to faith. This confidence in the flesh is a message which is a perversion of the gospel, which comes from hell itself. You see, the gospel is not about doing X, Y, and Z. It's not about our effort, about the confidence we have in ourselves that comes from what I do. It's not about being a better person, about attending a certain church, about performing some ritual or obeying some code. Now, the gospel does change a person's life. I will admit that. Having been saved from sin, we should no longer live under its tyranny. But that's not the same thing as saying that God accepts us because of what I do. See, in verse 2, these people were teaching a works righteousness. Paul, however, contrasts that in verse 3 by saying, we are the circumcision. Uh, Those who are circumcised in heart, who have the law written on the heart, they are true believers. He describes them in three terms. He says that there are those who worship in the spirit, who rejoice or boast in Christ, and then the last one, have no confidence in the flesh. That's the phrase he picks up on. No confidence in the flesh. You see what he's saying? If you believe the gospel, you have no confidence in the flesh. If you're teaching a message that promotes confidence in the flesh, then that's not the gospel message. The the two are opposites. See, confidence in the flesh is the very opposite of the gospel message which Paul proclaimed and which if you are a follower of Jesus today, you would believe. Those who trust in themselves for salvation are those who have abandoned the true gospel in favor of one of works. Paul is going to take that idea at the end of verse 3, no confidence in the flesh, and that's where he's going to pick up on. But he begins by saying and essentially telling us that confidence in the flesh is not the gospel message. Let me point this out to you in the life of Leo Tolstoy. Leo Tolstoy was and probably is the best remembered and most well-known Russian author of all time. His greatest works include The Expansive War and Peace and Anna Karina, books which are oftentimes recognized as some of the best novels ever written. And many people have believed that Leo Leo Tolstoy was a Christian. And you can definitely see why, because some of his books have very biblical themes in them. They use Christian-type language. And yet, if we look a little deeper, I think... Sadly, it appears that Tolstoy believed in a different gospel. In several works, Tolstoy gave his own view of religion, in which he said the question as to what saves, whether faith or good works. Some say that faith saves, and others say that works saves. He, however, reached his own conclusion and stated, to appear as justified and sanctified at the terrible day of judgment, for all that, in addition to faith, we need good works. On December 16th, 1906, four years before he died, Tolstoy said, I think a man can only fulfill God's law by setting an example of a good life, by purifying himself from evil, and increasing the good. Now, friends, that's not the gospel. And if that's what Tolstoy believed when he died, then I will not expect to see him in heaven because that is opposite of the gospel, this message of achievement, of personal working out and earning our salvation through our own merit. 
The stakes are that high. Confidence in the flesh is dangerous because it parades itself as the truth when in fact it's the lie of Satan. Confidence in the flesh is not the gospel. Here's another reason it is dangerous though. Confidence in the flesh leads to pride in one's spiritual resume. It leads to pride in one's spiritual resume. This is where we begin covering new ground. Starting in verse 4 down to verse 6, the Bible says, Though I might also have confidence in the flesh, there, by the way, is that same phrase that ended in verse 3. He picks up that thought and says, If anyone has confidence in the flesh, if anyone thinks he may have confidence in the flesh, I more so circumcised the eighth day of the stock of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, concerning the law of Pharisee, concerning zeal, persecuting the church, concerning righteousness, which is in the law, blameless. So Paul lays out his spiritual resume here. Now, when I was in college, I put together my first resume. And like most people's, I think, it it included all the different things I had done and my accomplishments. It talked about my skills and basically any jobs that I'd had or any, any potential things that employers might want to know. And as it was laid out in my resume, I think with most people's, it's, it's there to speak to an employer and say, hey, I am worth hiring. That's what a resume is for. And because of that, it usually highlights the good and downplays the bad, doesn't it? I mean, very rarely are you going to see somebody walk in with a resume that says, yeah, I was fired from my last job and I completely failed at my last uh, major task. That's, you're, you don't put that in a resume. You put the stuff that looks good. You know, if, if there was bad in your past, you just leave it off. Most people would, at least. Well, a resume is to put your best foot forward. Here is Paul's spiritual resume. He's saying, look, if I tally up all the things that I had going for me that were in my corner, I, as much as anyone, more than anyone, had reason to boast in the flesh, have this confidence. Now, Paul is not joining them here. He's not saying, okay, if we're going to do it that way, I'll just hop right in and show myself. He's trying to show the folly of this idea of overconfidence, of self-confidence. He's saying, listen, if you want to play that game, if you want to insist that there's confidence, I had reason to be confident, but no more. So basically, he's writing this for the Philippians, saying, listen, if you're toying with the idea of trusting in yourself and your self-righteousness, let me tell you, I've been there, done that, got the t-shirt. Or more accurately, he might say, been there, done that, don't bother. Because he walked that road. He certainly, um, among his Jewish compatriots at the time, looked like the ideal man. If anyone was going to get saved, it's Paul. He walks through this with us, launching off with this phrase, no confidence in the flesh. He says in verse 4, if anyone thinks he has reason for confidence, I more so. So if anybody wants to put themselves up against Paul, if they want to say, hey, listen, I can be saved by my own merits, Paul says, I've been there. He, He tried that. Reminds me a lot of Martin Luther. Luther, as a young monk, was haunted by his own insufficiency and sin before a holy God. He knew that even the smallest sin was a grave offense against the Almighty. 
And he took the works-based righteousness of the Roman church with vigor. He confessed so frequently and so often to his confessors that they eventually became wore out saying, listen, stop bringing all your little tiny sins to us. Luther himself once stated, if I'd kept on any longer, I should have killed myself with vigils and prayers and readings and other works. On another occasion, Luther commented, if ever a monk got to heaven by his monkery, it would have been me. Well, perhaps Paul would have said, if if ever a Jew got to heaven because of his Jewry, it would have been me. That's what he says. As we wade through Paul's spiritual resume, which is verses 5 and 6, I want to point out seven, seven things that cannot save you as they're presented here. Number one, your rituals cannot save you. Your rituals cannot save you. Look at how verse 4 begins. Or excuse me, verse 5. Circumcised the eighth day. He, he, he's starting to give his credentials. If someone wants to have confidence in the flesh, he says, how about me? I was circumcised the eighth day. Remember, these false teachers were teaching that circumcision was necessary, that keeping the Old Testament law was necessary if you wanted to be a true follower of Christ. Well, most religions in the world are built around ritual. In fact, uh, keeping some ritual or practice is usually the key element in reaching salvation, enlightenment, nirvana, whatever it is. So this thought is nothing new. Paul begins by saying, circumcise the eighth day. Circumcision was given by God as a ritual to the Jewish people. Abraham was instructed to circumcise his sons, and that would show that they were of the line of Abraham. It was an identity marker that set them apart from the Gentiles. In the Mosaic Law, hundreds of years later, it was commanded that boys in Israel be circumcised on the eighth day. Jesus was circumcised the eighth day, the Bible tells us. Now, the sign of circumcision did not mean that someone was right before God. It didn't mean that you are saved because you have performed this ritual. All it meant was that you were connected to the line of Abraham. You were a true son of Abraham. So what Paul is saying here is, I was circumcised the eighth day. I wasn't some Johnny-come-lately. I wasn't somebody who came afterwards and, and joined in trying to become part of Israel's line. I was, we followed the law. I was as Jewish as they come. He submitted, well, at age eight days, he was circumcised. And so he was not behind any of the other Jews. He certainly had as much right to claim confidence in the flesh as they did. The point is, though, it didn't benefit him. His rituals, whatever they might be, whatever rituals people might hoist upon us, they cannot save. Sometimes, even the question, what must I do to be saved? It's a great question, but I think sometimes when people ask it, what they're asking is, what do I got to do? How much much money do I got to give? What ritual do I have to go through to be a part? And many of the cults are built upon that rituals that you have to go through to be part of this community. Well, ritual cannot save. Now, in, in this teaching, it was circumcision. Sadly, today, there are some who believe that baptism will save, that somehow going through the waters is necessary, is a part of what is required. 
I had a professor who once said, I think that infant baptism, the doctrine of infant baptism, has probably sent more people to hell than any other. When I first heard him say that, I thought, that doesn't sound right. But the more I thought about it, how often has someone tried to share the gospel and the conversation ends with, well, I was baptized as an infant. Now, I know there's a difference between Reformed infant baptism and Roman Catholic, but the effect can sometimes be the same. People trust in that, their baptism, instead of a personal living faith in Jesus. That's what saves. It is Christ and being in a relationship with him that saves, not a ritual of baptism. Rituals cannot save you. They never have. Secondly, your pedigree cannot save you. He says this in the next phrase, of the stock of Israel. Again, as one who was circumcised on the eighth day, Paul belonged to the nation. He had the right heritage, the right lineage. He was a true Israelite. Now, a person could convert to the, the people of Israel you know, and, and join themselves to the people of Israel, which would include circumcision perhaps, but they were never true, blood, pure-blooded Israelites. Paul is saying, however, that he was. He also notes, though, and, and he'll go on to note in this passage, that was not a spiritual advantage to him. There was no spiritual advantage to being a Jew. By the way, the same could be said for any other race or ethnic identity. Black, white, brown, any race that you can think of. None are more guilty than anyone else, and none are more innocent than anyone else. There's no person closer or further from God because of their race. I know there's a lot of conversation about race that goes on in our world today. And sometimes it's presented as if, well, you know, one race is better or it's bad to be this. And the fact is, before God, there's no identity of race. We're people in need of a savior. And so there's no advantage then to Paul saying, I'm a Jew. Not only does your pedigree not save you, your family cannot save you. Notice he says in the next phrase, of the tribe of Benjamin. Now, Benjamin was one of a prominent tribe in Israel. Jacob had 12 sons, you remember? The youngest of them was Benjamin. Nevertheless, the tribe of Benjamin grew to become a rather important tribe in Israel. Uh, the first king of Israel, Saul, for whom Paul might have been named, was from the tribe of Benjamin. Mordecai, in the story of Esther, was of the tribe of Benjamin. And there's a number of others who came from this important tribe. So to say you're of the tribe of Benjamin was to say that not only are you a pure-blooded Israelite, but also from a prominent tribe, a well-respected part of Israel. Looking back at his family history, Paul could trace it not only through Israel, but also through this tribe. Now, we don't know much about Paul's parents, but we can assume, number one, that his father was a tent maker because he was trained in that as well. We can also assume that his parents took religion seriously since they allowed their son to go very far in training to be a rabbi. And so Paul looks back at his family history, including his tribe, and that was something he could have taken confidence in. Here's the truth. It won't save you. Your family will not save you. It doesn't matter if your grandpa was a pastor. 
or if you have three generations of missionaries in your family line. It doesn't matter if your parents are saved. It doesn't matter if your dad served as a deacon. It doesn't matter if your parents were godly people who loved the Lord and taught the scriptures in the home. You see, salvation is a matter of personal, is a personal thing between an individual and God. And as much as we would like to believe for our kids, it's up to them whether they will come to that point of acknowledging Jesus as their Savior and acknowledging their own sin and fallenness. Now, as a dad, I pray with our kids. I pray for our kids. I try to teach them what the Bible says. They're still pretty little. But there's one thing I can't do for them, and that is believe for them. They've got to do that. You see, family cannot save you. There's lots of people, I think, who kind of shrug it off and say, well, you know, my my grandma used to take me to church. And it's almost like they're leaning on that family history. Well, your family can't save you. Fourth, your culture can't save you. Notice he says, not only was he of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews. I mean, he already said he was Jewish, so why belabor this? Why Hebrew of Hebrews? What does that even mean? Well, many of the Jews at that time lived in what was called the diaspora. So throughout the world, there were Jews living in almost every corner. Now, some of them, you know, living in Alexandria or Antioch or even Rome, they were Jewish. They practiced their Jewish traditions and all of that. And yet most of them spoke Aramaic and were somewhat distanced from the culture of the homeland of Israel. Paul, however, is saying, I'm a Hebrew of Hebrews. This would be almost like saying, I'm a red-blooded American. Or, um, you know, in in the world of sports, I'm a die-hard fan of, you know, the Cubs or whatever the team is. Yeah, you've got all these other people who are, who say they're fans. Yeah, they wear the t-shirts and stuff, but, you know, they're like fair-weather fans. They kind of come and go. I'm I'm a die-hard fan. I stick with it. Well, this is Paul saying, a Hebrew of Hebrews is basically... I'm, I'm the true thing. I'm the real deal. It's, it's leaning into that culture which he has. Again, culture cannot save you. I think the point here is fairly clear. Being a Hebrew of Hebrews is not merit before God. You can't be saved by being a Hebrew of Hebrews. And you can't be saved, by the way, by being an American or even a Hoosier, Right? These are not things which we can trust in for salvation. Your culture doesn't save you. Fifth, your religion cannot save you. Now that one might make you pause for a second and say, well, wait a second, wait a second. Isn't Christianity a religion? Isn't, uh, isn't what we do here religious? Well, religion in a certain terminology here. Look at what he says in verse 6, uh, excuse me, the end of verse 5. He says, concerning the law of Pharisee. Paul calls himself a Pharisee. Now, the Old Testament law was what the Judaizers, these false teachers, were insisting that Christians should follow. If you want to be right with God, keep the laws, they said. Well, in Paul's spiritual resume, he said, look, I, I took the law seriously. I obeyed its commands. In fact, he calls himself a Pharisee, which was the strictest group in Israel. The Pharisees were well known for being strident about keeping the Old Testament law. 
they saw themselves as the law keepers. Even if all their neighbors kind of took a lax attitude towards, at least were the ones who were keeping the law. By the way, in modern day Israel, the, the contemporary uh, heirs to the Pharisees are what's called the ultra-Orthodox. They're the guys with the, wear the black coats and they have the curls and the hats and all of that. They're the ones who are almost obsessive about keeping all the Old Testament laws and all that the rabbis said as well. Paul says, look, I leaned hard into my religion as well, thinking that that would make me right before God. Now, if we are believing in Christ, if that's what you call religion, then yes. But religion typically and oftentimes refers to sort of this outward manifestation, this works righteousness system, which Paul was a part of. And if you're trusting in, hey, I'm a member of such and such a church, I'm a Baptist, I grew up going to such and such a church, if that's the, the basis for your salvation, then you're trusting in the wrong thing. Religion as a system can't save you. You're saved by the person of Christ. If we believe in him, then yes, we are saved. If we believe in religion, then we're trusting in the wrong thing. Paul was consumed like Luther after him about doing what was right, obeying God's law, doing all that was required of him that he might earn his salvation. But that's not how it works. Not only can your religion not save you, your zeal cannot save you. Verse 6, concerning zeal, persecuting the church. Not only was Paul a Pharisee who took the law seriously, he took his commitment to it seriously. He had a zeal for his beliefs that led him to even persecute the church. That's how seriously he took it. Other Pharisees were serious about the law, but they didn't necessarily go as far as Paul did in persecuting the church. He believed in his belief system so much that the church preaching something different, he insisted must be stamped out. So Paul is saying, if being a Pharisee makes you right before God, I was the best. I did it with gusto. There's a popular thought that swirls around today that basically says this. It doesn't really matter what you believe as long as you're really sincere about it. As long as you really, you know, what, what's good for you is good for you. Just, you know, as long as you believe it with all your heart, then, you know, good for you, that, that's enough. Now, that's a warped Warped belief, but that's out there. You know, if you're sincere about it, if if you're, that's how you really feel. Well, that's good for you. Well, zeal and sincerity alone is not enough to save. Doesn't matter how sincerely be you believe that you can fly. If you jump out of a plane without a parachute, that's going to be the last thing you ever do. Sincerity isn't the measure. It's whether or not it's true. You may believe something very sincerely that's not true. It cannot save you. It, the measure is what is true, not what is, not are you sincere about it. Finally, though, he says your goodness cannot save you. Your goodness. And I think this is where a lot of people would get confused. They say, yeah, I understand your family can't save you. I understand religion can't save you. But doesn't God measure us based upon what we do? Isn't it what we do that God says, looks on, and that's what he uses to 
determine whether or not we're saved? Look at how he ends in verse 6. Concerning righteousness, which is in the law, blameless. In other words, using the law as the measure, if that's the standard, then Paul says, hey, I, I lived out my life according to the law, and you couldn't find any fault with the way I did it. In other words, uh, I was a pretty good person. I did everything I could. I checked all the boxes. I did what I was supposed to, kept my nose clean, but it doesn't save. Your goodness will not save you. I mean, some people would think, well, certainly, you know, Mother Teresa must be saved because she did a bunch of good stuff. Or Princess Diana, you know, led a bunch of humanitarian efforts. Certainly she must be saved. Or, Or Oprah Winfrey, for that matter. But it's not your measure of good works. In fact, I think a lot of people's approach to spirituality and, and thinking about salvation is like this, one spiritual resume. As long as I build up a good resume, as long as I collect enough good works and do enough good things, I can kind of build this resume that God will be impressed with. And he'll say, certainly, you're, you're welcome in. They take pride in it. They think that they can impress God by having this cache of good works that they can present to God and say, here, look at what I've done. It got me thinking about a little poem, sort of a children's poem, and the poem has its own purpose, but it did illustrate this for me quite well. It's a poem, you might know, it's called Hector the Collector. Hector collects a bunch of stuff in the poem, and to him, it's treasures of great worth. Here's, Here's how the poem goes. Hector the Collector collected bits of string, collected dolls with broken heads and rusty bells that wouldn't ring, bent up nails and ice cream sticks and twists of wire and worn out tires and paper bags and broken bricks, old chipped vases, half shoelaces, Gatlin guns that wouldn't shoot, leaky boats that wouldn't float, and stopped up horns that wouldn't toot, butter knives that had no handles, copper keys that fit no locks, rings that were too small for fingers, dried up leaves and patched up socks, Worn-out belts and had no buckles, electric trains that had no tracks, airplane models, broken bottles, three-legged chairs, and cups with cracks. Hector the Collector loved these things with all his soul. He loved them more than shining diamonds, loved them more than glistening gold. Then at the end of the poem, Hector the Collector calls to all the people and says, Come and share my treasure trunk. And all the people come and look and say, What a pile of junk. You see, that's what people are doing, collecting this cache of righteousness, this great spiritual resume, and thinking, wow, this is going to make God happy. God is going to be so impressed with me. And they present it, and it's just a bunch of worn-out half shoelaces and keys that don't fit any locks. It's, it's a bunch of worthless junk. Which finally leads us to our last thought here on confidence in the flesh. Number three, confidence in the flesh is shattered by God's grace. If you think you have reason to be confident in the flesh, well, then let me introduce you to God's grace. Because we come woefully short of pleasing God with all of our good works. And it's only grace. And grace shatters this idea into a thousand pieces. Look at verse 7. But what things were once gained to me, these things I have counted loss for Christ. Paul is going to go on with that thought over the next few verses. We just couldn't deal with all of it in one sermon. But let me highlight this. Confidence in the flesh is shattered 
by God's grace. He mentions these things which were once gained to me, I now count as loss. He's using the language here of accounting, of a ledger. So a ledger, you got the line down the middle of the page. On one side is what are called assets. So anything that you have or that uh, would be of value. And then on the other side is liabilities. Anything that, you know, debts, expenses, all of that on the loss side. So as he weighs things out, he says, all the things that were once on my asset side of my sheet, I thought these were great. I thought this is what God would be impressed with. He says, they are now lost to me. I put them on the other side of the page. These things are no longer assets but liabilities. Now, what is he talking about, these things? Well, it's interesting the way it's phrased in the Greek here in verse 7. He says, these things were gained to me. And by that, it seems to imply that all the stuff he has just mentioned and anything else you could possibly think of. In other words, Paul is saying, I could go on forever here, listing off things that used to be of value to me, but now I put all that stuff in the lost category. It doesn't matter to me. It doesn't mean anything to me anymore. Whatever things were gained, he now counts as loss. This, this word loss is interesting as well because it only appears one other time in the New Testament. It's in Acts 27, which tells us about a shipwreck in which all the cargo was lost. There it has the same idea, the accounting language. All that cargo that the merchants would have added on their asset line, when the ship crashed, they counted it as a business loss. Well, I guess we'll just have to chalk that up to you know, stormy weather. Guess we'll just have to write that one off the books. That's how Paul feels about his righteousness. All these things that he would have counted as things worthy before God, things that would have earned him a place, he now counts as loss. I think what Paul is saying is he discovered for the first time what it says in Isaiah 64, 6. All our righteousness are as filthy rags. All the things that people would say, yeah, this is what I have done. Wouldn't God be proud? The Bible says they're repulsive. They're not something you want to wear. It's something you want to throw in the garbage. So it is when we try to earn righteousness. We think we're doing such a good job. Like Hector the Collector, where we think of ourselves as having all these diamonds, this giant treasure trove, when it's nothing but junk. See, the new birth had given Paul a new outlook on life. It flipped his whole perspective on spiritual value. Those things which were once gained are now lost. And now he puts in his asset column, Christ, Christ alone. Look at the next verse, verse 8. Yet indeed I count all things as loss for the excellence of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord, whom I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish that I might gain Christ. Christ is my only asset is what he's saying. See, the grace of God shatters this idea of self-confidence that we can do anything. No, it's Christ and Christ alone that saves. Nothing else. It's a gift of God not the wages of your good works. Well, this whole passage loudly declares that you cannot be saved on your own merit. Now, you might be saying amen to everything I've said this morning. If you're already trusting in Christ alone for your salvation, well, what possible application do we have here? What can be learned from this passage? Let me suggest two things very quickly. 
Number one, as we read this passage together, if you're a follower of Jesus, it should purge us of all pride. It should purge us of all pride. We're saved by grace. It's not our works. It's not what we've done. You see, trusting in your spiritual resume, that produces pride. I mentioned last Sunday the, the parable which Jesus told of the tax collector and the Pharisee. The Pharisee, you remember, was talking about how he was a righteous person, and he says, thank, thank you, Lord, that I'm not like this tax collector over here and all these other horrible sinners. The tax collector stood a ways off and beating his breast said, Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner. It's one of the best depictions I can think of of self-righteousness, of confidence in the flesh. And yet somehow, even those who have been saved by God's grace can slip into those periods of pride. And it's counter to what it should be, but it happens. I read a little story of a Sunday school teacher who was teaching her junior class that story of the Pharisee and the tax collector and how the tax collector was humble and was saved and how the Pharisee was prideful and wicked. So at the end of the lesson, the Sunday school teacher asked one of the junior students to pray. And he began his prayer like this. Lord, thank you that we are not like that Pharisee. Not sure he quite got the message. Because that's how we come off sometimes. Thank you that we're not like the self-righteous ones. It should purge us of all pride. Secondly, it should free us from legalism. This idea that God judges us and looks down on us with this list in hand, waiting to see if we've done all of his requirements. God has loved us unconditionally through Christ. He saved us not when we did what he liked, but while we were yet sinners. And that's not to say that God doesn't call us to live holy lives. He does. But it ought to free us from this notion of, I've got to do more. I've got to please God by checking off the items. It ought to free us from legalism. Finally, though, I would say this, and this isn't on the PowerPoint, but if you've never trusted Christ, or maybe you look back at that spiritual resume of Paul and say, you know what, I've been trusting in my family. I've been trusting in religion. I've been trusting in ritual. Then what you need to do today is to admit I'm a sinner and nothing more. And I need Christ. Trusting Christ is in one moment the simplest thing you can do, and yet it's the most profound. It's not complex. It's asking the Lord to forgive you of your sins and asking him to cleanse you from all that unrighteousness that is your life and receiving him as your Savior. If you would like help to do that, I'd love to talk with you about it. But let us not walk away with the false notion that you can be saved by your own merit. It is only by the grace of God.